eat. And as Paul said, my name is John, and we are delighted that you're with us this morning. Uh, What we're going to do now is we're going to turn to God's Word. This is how we believe God speaks to us today in the Bible. We're about to to read a, a short story from the life of Jesus from one of the historical records written by one of the eyewitnesses who saw and heard what Jesus did and said. So can I invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 2. You can find that on page 887 in the Bibles you received as you came in. And as you're arriving at John chapter 2, let me ask us all a question to, to begin with. What brings you most joy? I, I asked a bunch of my friends scattered across the world, and most of them not Christians, this question, and their responses ranged from the instinctive to the thoroughly thought through, and their answers were as follows. One of them said, my dog, that gives me most joy. Another said, when I'm dancing, it wasn't Aaron, it was somebody else. Uh, One said, picture the best day you've ever had. Now imagine your kids and grandkids all in that day, and that, that thought brings me the most joy. Uh, Another said, the accumulation of lots of small good things. Other said, weddings of close friends. And another, another simply said, watching Top Gun Maverick never left the cinema smiling like that, they said. My friend is quite simple. Uh, he's very lovely. <laughs> there, there is so much to be joyful about. We, we could spend all day listing lovely things. Uh, one of my friends, the guy, in fact, who mentioned Top Gun, um, said this, and I just want to read this to you. Uh, he said to me, maybe, John, I'm just being pessimistic, but I don't think I experience joy very often. There's usually something tainting it whether it's the the fleetingness or unmet expectations. This friend gave the example of how they felt after their final uni coursework was submitted. Uh, He said that he thought, I'm going to be happy when this is done. And once it happened, it it felt like a a non-event, his words. And I think he's right Nothing good seems to last as much as we'd like. Our bodies grow old. Friends move away. That's very true in a town like ours. Being married is considerably harder than getting married. Relationships end. And people we love get sick and and die. So is it possible to, to find a joy that lasts, a joy that transcends our circumstances, the joy that Aaron seemed to be speaking of. Does such a thing exist? And if it does, where? And how do I get it? What we're about to read tackles these questions head on. The setting is one of the most joyful of occasions. It's a wedding, and this is Jesus's first public miracle. So we're going to read from chapter 2 and the first 11 verses. 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Before we go any further, why don't I pray for God's help as we come to this passage. Dear God, we ask you for your help to help us understand the crucial things being communicated through this sign. Help us to clearly see how it is that Jesus brings never-ending joy for all who believe in him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this story that we just read, this is the, the beginning of Jesus' public career, his ministry. And if you're starting something new, launching a product, starting a business, setting off on an election campaign, you want to get the message right from the start. The very first presentation is usually carefully constructed and meticulously thought through. You want everything, every word and action to convey the message about what you're all about. This is Jesus' first miracle, and so a, a really important question as we come to this event is, why would Jesus decide that the miracle to kick things off and reveal what he's all about is to keep a party going? Why, why would he do that? And, and the key to understanding this event is, is right at the end of the passage that we just read in, in verse 11, where what Jesus does is called a sign. Verse 11 says this, the first of his signs Jesus did in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. A sign is a symbol of something else. Just think of a traffic sign. It conveys information and direction. And John is concerned to see beyond the miracle to its significance, to its meaning. These signs in John's gospel are special actions by Jesus which reveal his glory, his true identity to those who believe 
and which confront others which need to decide about Jesus. Uh, The signs confront us with Jesus. Who is he and what did he come to do? And the first thing that this sign reveals about Jesus is all about his identity, namely that the guy who turns water into wine is the creator of the whole universe. If you cast your eyes with me again to verses 1 and 2, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it, to just think of Jesus being invited to a wedding. Uh, clearly, He's not perceived as an antisocial killjoy, even if there was likely some family link behind the invitation. And the drama of the event comes there in verse 3, that the wine ran out. The reason that the wine ran out in the first place is because Jewish wedding celebrations back in the first century could last as long as a week, and clearly someone didn't plan very well. Uh, A week-long wedding, to me, sounds pretty crazy. Uh, I'm used to 45-minute ceremony, a couple of speeches, a meal, a Kaylee, go home. Now, what, what sets this wedding apart isn't the duration, but rather a guest that does something remarkable. And if you look at verses six to nine with me, you you can see Jesus gives instructions. Those instructions were followed, and what started as water, by the time it reaches the lips of the wedding MC, it is now wine. Turning water into wine is not something that normal people can do, John is an unembarrassed supernaturalist. He just lays it out plainly. This is what Jesus did, and the sign demonstrates Jesus' sheer power and control over nature. Jesus doesn't need time. He doesn't need extra ingredients. He doesn't perform some sort of magic ceremony. He simply instructs the servants to do as he asks, and there is wine instead of water. It takes no effort. He doesn't work up a sweat. It's not demanding in the slightest. Now, you may be sitting thinking that this is simply impossible and unreasonable. How can water become wine? Well, the answer is that instantaneously, it it can't. It's impossible. The the, the point is a simple one. To to move molecules and atoms and change the basic biochemical reality of a substance is impossible unless you're the creator of the universe. As a Christian, I, I don't believe that miracles happen all the time. Otherwise, they they wouldn't be miracles. Even in John's gospel, they're quite rare. In the Bible as a whole, they're rare. And in the experience of most people, they are extremely rare. That's what makes them miracles. But because of who God is, it's not philosophically or, or scientifically problematic 
to accept that miracles are possible. If Jesus is that creator God, then we should expect to see miracles be performed by, by him. The, the laws of nature being interfered with by the one who created those very laws. And did you notice the, the references to, to both the quantity and the quality of the wine? There in verses 6 and 7, we're told that there are six stone water jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, filled to the brim. Each jar then, if my maths is right, holds between about 80 to 120 liters. There were six of those. So about 600 liters total. There's about 700 mil in a bottle of wine. So we're talking about 850 bottles of wine. And then in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. 850 bottles of the good stuff. By, by turning plain H2O into the finest, most expensive Merlot, Jesus reveals something about who he is, that he's the very creator of the universe. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I'm still curious as to, to why this sign as your debut. Why, why change water into wine to make the point that you have infinite creation power? What, what's the message? Is there more? And that does lead us to the second and third points that are in your handout or in the screen, they, they, they reveal something about Jesus' identity and his mission, and specifically that he's the long-promised Savior of the Old Testament who came to bring that unparalleled joy. And so firstly, this idea of him being the promised Savior in this sign, uh, one of the pals that I messaged was incredibly philosophical about my question. And what they said to me was, John, I find the concept of joy quite scary because it means choosing to avoid all the bad stuff that does happen. After a number of paragraphs and trying to decipher all that they were trying to say, they, they summarized it really neatly, which was, I, I guess joy is no problems, and only good things. And I think that's a pretty good definition for the world most of us would probably desire. I wonder if you can just picture it now in your mind's eye, what a better world would look like. It would have all the things that make this life great and none of the things that ruin it. No problems, only good things. Uh, the Old Testament, uh, part of the Bible, is full of promises that God one day will intervene in the world to make everything right. No more injustice or war or evil, just love and joy and peace. What the Bible describes as, as heaven, the perfect world we all long for. 
Over hundreds and hundreds of years, as we read the Old Testament, God tells us more and more about what this new world is going to be like and and how He's going to make it happen. God gives us hints and markers and signs so that we'll know that it's coming. And what becomes clear as you read the Old Testament is that all of these hopes center on the arrival of a single person whom God will send into the world, a Messiah or Christ, a king who will rule over all people for all time and who one day will make all things right and new. And the point for us to to register here is that every single one of the miracles that Jesus performs in John's gospel are, are designed as little proofs that Jesus is the promised Savior of the Old Testament, the one that we've been waiting for. That's what's happening here with this wine. On one level, it's just a a, a miraculous solution to a, a social faux pas. But when we see the way that God has spoken of wine in the Old Testament, we we twig that this sign points way beyond itself. Uh, The prophets in the Old Testament often use the language of feasting and banquets to describe the celebrations that would happen, uh, that would follow when God's promised Savior would come. Uh, Some of the the prophets spoke to the people of Israel who were in exile and held out a vision to them. They, They described a day in the future when God would rescue His people from captivity and restore them to the land that was given to their ancestors. And when that day arrived, one of the big giveaways was going to be lots of very high-quality wine. And so, both the prophets Joel and Amos talked about a large quantity of of wine, and the prophet Isaiah talked about great quality of wine. Let me just read to you a few lines from Isaiah chapter 25. He was writing some 700 years before Jesus, and he's speaking about that final day, and he says this, "'On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines.'" And so, we are meant to arrive at John chapter 2 and go, oh, wait, I've seen this all before. We're, We're meant to think loads of amazing wine must mean that God's promised Savior has arrived and that He's here to save. The wine isn't the only thing that points us back into the Old Testament and that tell us that Jesus is God's promised Savior. The fact that this all takes place at a wedding is reminiscent of the Old Testament where weddings and marriage had been symbolic of God's relationship with His people. There's so much that we could touch on, and there are so many layers in these 11 verses, but we don't have all that much time. What's really, really important is asking how. How would Jesus clearly 
the long-promised Messiah actually save people? And what did he come to save them from? And for that, we turn to to Jesus' words in in verse 4. It's just a hint at this point, but it's a big one. After Jesus' mum appeals to him for some help somehow, he responds in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. If you were to to read the the whole book of John, and we would encourage you to do that, we've got a bunch of these at the table at the front as you came in, please take one. It's the whole account of John's gospel. It's our gift from us to you. And if you'd like some help reading through it, we'd love to do that also. And if you were to read John's account of Jesus' life, And if you're a careful reader, you you will find out that every place that Jesus speaks about his hour, he's talking about the events of his death and resurrection. Jesus is is looking past his mum and past the bride and the groom and the wedding guests. Jesus is looking beyond all of them. And it's as if he's saying, you really want me to do something about these newlyweds' shame? You want me to restore joy to this wedding? I have come to deal with ultimate sin and shame. I have come to bring eternal joy, but I'm going to have to die to do it. Turning water into wine isn't the whole story for Jesus. There's more to come, namely his death on a cross and his death-defeating resurrection three days later. Jesus had to die because there is a a fate far worse than than social embarrassment or or even greater than whatever your most joy-deprived experience has been. Whoever fails to recognize that he's the creator of the universe and God's promised and sent Savior is in fact rejecting Jesus. And if you were to keep on reading until the next chapter, Jesus himself says that whoever does not believe in him is condemned. Uh, Jesus had to die because his death is the means by which he offers to all of us the blessings of heaven with all its infinitely awesome and perpetual joy. Jesus' hour was his true moment of glory. God, God sent Jesus in order that the world might be saved through him. And in the next chapter, it's spelt out so beautifully, so clearly, so iconically. I don't know if that's a word. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And at the point of belief, when we recognize who Jesus is 
and ask Him to save us from our sin, to save us from a life living for ourselves and trying to find joy in any which place but with Him. When we ask Him to forgive us, at that point, the the hour of His death becomes the moment our sin is completely dealt with. The the punishment that we deserve for rejecting Him transferred to Him, to Him who lovingly and sacrificially embraced the hour so that we didn't have to, so that I didn't have to. John will tell us at the end of his book that he, he wrote this for you so that you might believe in Jesus and so have life a life with joy for all circumstances, now and eternal life with unparalleled joy in the future. And so a really legitimate question, it's the question that we are confronted with as we come to the one who is the creator of the universe and God's promised Savior, is what's stopping you from believing that Jesus is who He claimed to be? Uh, The evidence is there, and the invitation is held out. And what an invite it is, an invitation to unparalleled and forever joy. I read earlier from Isaiah chapter 25, a little bit about that high-quality wine. Let me read a little bit more what comes next in those few verses. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove people's reproach and shame, for the Lord God has spoken. Just this week, it so happened to be this way, I I sat with three friends who who shed tears for a, a number of reasons. And how I wish I could wipe away all their tears. And, and my own. The, the sign here might appear simple or unimpressive or confusing, but it really matters because Jesus didn't come, as some might think, to, to spoil your fun or, or rob you of your joy. He, he didn't come to bring misery. Rather, He came to wipe away every tear. I love, as I visualize that, the proximity of the Lord Jesus so that he might be able to do that. He came to to renew this world and end all evil and sadness forever. That's what he came to do. Uh, The final book of the Bible picks up where Isaiah left off. Uh, And it says this, I'm just going to read from Revelation 21, and then we'll draw things together. 
And in a vision of the future, John saw this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. At the end of all things, joy will be so incredible and so amazing that the suffering of history and our own lives will be all too quickly forgotten. I genuinely hope that your life is filled with joy. I pray that the joy that characterizes your life is the joy that Jesus alone came to bring, joy that will never end. Uh, The nature of the Christian message, uh, the gospel which we believe, is that it is good news, and with it comes joy. Uh, Joy is the hallmark of the Christian. We heard a little bit about that from Aaron. For every Christian knows the things about about which we can be joyful about, even when all other joys are taken away from us. And so how are we to to respond this morning? Well, I put it to you that the, the, the real Jesus is the Jesus who turned water into wine and who did his first miracle at a party, at a wedding. The disciples, you may have noticed in verse 11, responded by believing in him, by entrusting themselves to him. They didn't know everything at this point, but they knew enough that they could trust Jesus with their life, with their death, with their eternity. And so, they put their faith in him and started following him. And Jesus wants all of us to respond in the same way. And for some of us, that would be for the very first time. Uh, For others, it's a daily battle to go on following Jesus, listening to his voice, denying self, loving him and enjoying him. Today, we are reminded that he is absolutely worthy of it all. He's the creator of the universe the promised Savior of the world, who came to bring unparalleled joy to all who would trust in Him. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank You so much for Jesus. Thank You that He is the almighty Creator of all things, the one we depend on for our each and every breath, Thank you that he is the Messiah, the the fulfillment of your plan to save people from their sin. 
thank you that he embraced the hour of his death and that in his resurrection we can have certainty that all his claims are true and trustworthy. Thank you that he brings a joy that will last forever. Please help all of us to respond to him rightly. And in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to close our time by singing.